314, you're right. saves you by his grace. Amen. What a thought to think of joining the everlasting song. I have the privilege to read with you this morning Psalm chapter 81. I'll be reading from your pew Bible. This is found on page beginning 491 on to 492, 491, 492, Psalm 81. This is not a very long psalm or section of scripture to read by comparison to others, so I want to read along with the psalm um, a concise version of uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on this particular passage. You'll see at the end of chapter 7, 
a natural pause, a selah, to think of what has been said and take time to prepare for what would come next. Matthew Henry has broken that, this psalm naturally into those two parts, verses 1 through 7. Speak of God is, what it, uh, God is praised for what he has done for his people. And then verses 8 through 6 are his people's obligations to him. What I'll do is just a, a small paragraph here. I'll read uh, first the commentary uh, portion on verses 1 through 7, then I'll read 1 through 7. And we'll read the commentary portion on verses 8 through 16, and then read 8 through 16. Beginning with the commentary on verses 1 through 7. All the worship we can render to the Lord is beneath his excellences and our obligations to him, especially in our redemption from sin and wrath. What God had done on Israel's behalf was kept in remembrance by public solemnities. To make a deliverance appear more gracious, more glorious, it is good to observe all that makes the trouble we are delivered from, from appear more grievous. We ought never to forget the base and ruinous drudgery to which Satan, our oppressor, brought us. But when, in distress of consciousness, we are led to cry for deliverance, the Lord answers our prayers and sets us at liberty. Convictions of sins and trials by affliction prove his regard to his people. If the Jews, on their solemn feast days, were thus to call to mind their redemption out of Egypt, much more ought we, on the Christian Sabbath, to call to mind a more glorious redemption, wrought out for us by our Lord Jesus Christ from worse bondage. Let's look to the text, verse 1 through 7. To the choir master, according to Giddeth, to the Giddeth of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. God's to be praised what he's done, for what he's done for his people. The commentary portion on verses 8 through 16. We cannot look for too little from the creature, nor too much from the creator. We may have enough from God if we pray for it in faith. All the wickedness of the world is owing to man's 
willfulness. People are not religious because they will not be so. God is not the author author of their sin. He leaves them to the lusts of their own hearts and the counsel of their own heads. If they do not well, the blame must be upon themselves. The Lord is unwilling that any should perish. What enemies sinners are to themselves. It is sin that makes our troubles long and our salvation slow. Upon the same conditions of faith and obedience do Christian hold, Christians hold these spiritual and eternal good things, which the pleasant fields and fertile hills of Canaan showed forth. Christ is the bread of life. He is the rock of salvation. And his promises are as honey to pious minds. But those who reject him as Lord and Master must also lose him as their Savior and their reward. Read with me through the end of the psalm, starting with verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide. I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts, to their own counsels, to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn their hand, my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning our praise is to you alone. How grateful we are to have been relieved of the burden that we shouldered. Lord, I pray that if there are any within the sound of my voice who still carry the burden, let them cry out to Christ. He will answer their prayers. He will free their hands from the weight that they carry. Lord, this body is richly blessed with many young children in our care. I pray for each of them, Lord. You are the creator of all. You made each one of these children unique. They are all fearfully and wonderfully made. And Lord, we cry out to you this morning that you would call all of them to yourself, that we would all see the day that they individually confessed Christ as Lord, that they would live with him as their Lord and master so that they would receive him as their savior and their reward. Bless this time of prayer and of song. 
bless the teaching, the preaching, for your glory and your glory alone. Amen. Psalm 145, 1. The psalmist says, I exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. I will honor your name forever and ever. In Revelation 22, 16, it says, I, Jesus, am the bright morning star. Let's turn to 295 and stand up and sing, All Hail, King Jesus. 295.
Julia today and Jerry as well. We're going to continue and sing of our King through his word. And I want you to see him there in John chapter 18, John chapter 18. We're going to continue really what we started last week about Christ and his kingdom. We focused on the king mostly, and now we'll look at his kingdom and we'll see to the degree we can finish this up. We're never completely exhausted because it's an inexhaustible subject. In John chapter 18, in the midst of this trial before Rome, Jesus makes this statement to Pilate in verse 36 of John 18. He simply says, My kingdom is not of this world. This king is, as we focused on last week, indescribable. And whatever we think of about Jesus in our minds, even now, they are not enough. It's not broad enough. It's not comprehensive enough to capture all who he is. We are getting a glimpse, if you will, of his glory. The John mentioned in John 1.14, if you remember, he said, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They didn't see the fullness of it, But they did get a glimpse of it, and the response is that he, Jesus Christ, is full of grace and truth. That is perfection in those qualities. The quality of truth and the quality of grace are mentioned, but that certainly isn't all. We have experienced grace. We know truth to some degree, but it's a perceived Factor, if you will, it is limited by what theologians might call the noetic effects of sin, that is, how sin would affect the human mind. We know about grace, we know about truth, these are topics and subjects we have an idea of, but certainly not, our understanding isn't perfect. We use the term glory to describe these characteristics of Jesus Christ, glory in the sense that it is perfect. And our response to something that is perfect, or at least in this life, close to perfect, is awe. It is overwhelming. It is glorious. The right response then to those people who were in in the uh, presence of the king of glory would have been immediately right there and there then to fall down and worship him as in truly who he is. On their knees confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, if you've been reading along with us in this section of Scripture, you'll note that that doesn't happen. Essentially, the entire crowd there, the Jewish leaders who are there, 
the Roman government and government officials that are there, the various Gentiles that might be in the mix of the crowd, demonstrate their insane rebellion against this very one, this beautiful one, this perfect one, this one who is full of grace and truth and mercy, the sovereign king, the Lord of lords. They choose Barabbas. And now you know why I use the term insane. This would be insane to make that choice. If you had the choice between two, this is light and darkness, true, good, and evil, no comparison. And yet it tells how affected of the heart man is. Indeed, desperately wicked. This morning, I thought we would benefit by examining, if you will, a little bit more carefully this concept of kingdom that Christ brings up here in context in his trial in Rome, or before the Roman officials, should I say. He says about his kingdom, it is not, and note this, from and it is not of this world. However, the king is right there, and we'll look at some of his teaching in the Gospels that are preserved for us. The kingdom is actually clearly there. It isn't from, that is, the source. It isn't of, that is, the substance. But yet it is right there. It is at hand because the king is standing before them. Let's read this then in the context in which we look at it in the Gospel of John. Jesus before Pilate. He goes out to, Pilate that is, goes out to try to see what's going on with these Jewish leaders who brought him and he doesn't understand. So he goes out to him again, verse 33. He enters into his headquarters and again called Jesus to him and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Obviously indicating here that there is some misunderstanding of both the king and the kingdom, as we recognize. Pilate answers, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. He's affirming, yes, he is a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 
But you have a custom that I release one man for you at the Passover, so you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you'll get us a glimpse of the glory of Christ. May the very words here as we look and consider his teaching and preaching of the kingdom of heaven, that it may be something that warms our heart in recognizing the truth and reality of Christ the King. May it have great practical effect in our life, both comforting and convicting, as well as granting great courage in difficult days. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm emphasizing here Jesus' statement concerning the kingdom. He says, my kingdom, verse 36. What, what is his kingdom? Well, one way to describe it certainly would be a kingdom of truth. He says in verse 37, this is why I have come into the world. Hence, his kingdom is not from the world, it is from above, if you will. It is God coming into the world. Why would God bother to, if you will, come into the world in that sense? It's to bear witness of the truth. Because all other sources, by the way, are corrupted. That's why they change their mind about, quote-unquote, science all the time. <laughs> even things they think they're pretty assured of. Because there is one thing that is absolutely true, and it's not from here. It's from above. It is Christ who comes into the world to bear witness of the truth. And so Pilate asks, and I think, it's hard to tell tone, but I think kind of sarcastically, what is truth? Kind of postmodern before postmodern was cool. But it is a good question if you take it on that term. The answer is his kingdom. His kingdom is true in contrast to the kingdoms of the world, right? The world's system. The systems of the world which are not true in the sense of they're not perfectly true. There's truth and error in it and hence it is not true. It is error. It has error in it. It, 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 it does since the earth has been cursed. It's not true in the sense of absolute perfection as Christ and his kingdom is. It is distinct in that sense. By the way, you can think historically and even in this day, men have attempted to tear down whatever current system, or think of it in this, this terminology, kingdom, reign, rule, governance, whatever, they tear that down to replace it with something else. And I would grant that perhaps some systems are better than others, but none of them address the root of the problem. 
which is the source and substance. This is why Christ is not from or of. Any system from or of the world is going to be corrupted with sin. So our answer is not just to change the world system, if you will, because it'll just be something else that is from the world or of the world. It needs a radical transformation. It's going to take a miraculous one, not an external reformation, but an internal regeneration through Christ our Lord. What is needed is an internal and spiritual reformation, and that is what Christ has purposed. He has proclaimed it, and we'll look at that. And all of this is unfolding according to his plan. It's on the right timeline. He came at the right time to bear the truth, and the kingdom of God is indeed at hand. And Christ would proclaim that and that preaching of the kingdom. And by the way, I think this is why Pilate found that he wasn't a threat to him. He was some idealist in Pilate's mind, which he again misunderstood, but he recognized it wasn't about some sort of material overflow of the current political and judicial system. Because if it were, all you would do is replace it with something else that was corrupt. Oh, you might say, well, this one's not as corrupt as that one. But it it isn't truth. It isn't perfection. And Christ is bringing a totally different kingdom. His purpose, verse 37, is to bear witness to what? The truth. This is the proclamation idea of bearing witness, that is, bringing forth that which is absolutely true. This refers not only in his incarnation, of course, but also you can see it indicated throughout his public ministry. He bears witness to the truth. And a common theme If you read through the Gospels, and I hope I highlight this in your mind, so as you get a chance to read through the Gospels, you can think of this term being used in Christ's teaching and preaching when he talks about the kingdom of God. He is bearing witness of that very truth, and the Gospel writers record many of his teachings on that subject. We'll look at some of it to some degree this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, for example. Now, in the Old Testament, there, were, there was a pointer, and we'll get to how it pointed in a bit, but there's a pointer that there would be a Messiah that would come forth that would proclaim truth, and this proclamation of the Old Testament prophesied would be fulfilled. And indeed, they would have a predecessor who would go forth and bear witness of that one who is truth, who is coming. And we know how it fleshes out if you see it in Matthew, for example. 
It is through John the Baptist who was prophesied to come before the Lord. Verse 1 in chapter 3 of Matthew, John the Baptist. Here he is an Old Testament prophet, if you will, a bridge between the old and the new, affirming all that has been said before. And John comes forth, he says he's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So what is he proclaiming? What is he preaching? Here it is, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See what I'm saying? Christ has come. So what should you do when the king comes? Repent. That's the call. Repent, for this is at hand. It's now. Now is the time. And notice how he links this to the Old Testament prophecy. He says this is what's spoken, verse 3, by the prophet Isaiah when he said, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The Lord here is the sovereign God, the King of kings. And here the Old Testament prophet in this transitional period comes forth and says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it is here now. It is at hand. Why? Because here comes the king. Remember, the king, his kingdom is his sphere of authority and rule and reign, and here comes the king. Christ continues this theme again, prophesied and fulfilling all that the Old Testament would point to. Turn over to chapter 4, and we'll skip down to verse 12. John fades off the scene. In fact, he is, and I want you to look at this closely and tie it into something else if I get to it. If not, you will get this on your own. But let me just point. Here, verse 12, John's arrested, and he withdrew to Galilee, speaking of Jesus, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? So that, verse 14, I'm in chapter 4, 4, 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the ways by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now that's really key. In the kingdom preaching that calls for repentance, which, by the way, you can't repent without believing. I mean, they go together. Some oftentimes will say, repent and believe, right? Or just believe. Believe means to repent, and repent means to believe. That they're inextricably linked. You can't have one without other. Repent just means turn in the other way. Well, what are you turning away from sin? What are you turning towards? You're turning to Christ. You know, if you turn to Christ in belief, you don't stay focused on that which is unbelief. So, anyway, he calls for them to repent. And notice here, it is Galilee, then Christ goes to, and those who are thought of at that time as not in the kingdom. So, the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist is saying, here it is. And where is Jesus going? Well, he's in addition to The Jews, he's preaching to the Gentiles. Why? Verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, light has dawned. Remember we use that analogy a lot of light and darkness. Here it is again. Death and life, light and darkness, people even dwelling out of the kingdom are being brought the kingdom news because here's the kingdom that's coming. And from that time, Jesus began to do what? It says preach, herald, proclaim, if you will. What is he preaching? What is the content? It is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come. And now he's bringing salvation to all, including those that were in the darkness, the Gentiles, those who were not a people, have now been brought into the very kingdom of heaven. By the way, as an aside here, just in case you happen to hear of it, there's no difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Christ, if I remember correctly, is only actually used once. But it's all the same. It's the kingdom, and we, whether we say it's the kingdom of heaven, God, or Christ, it's the same thing. This is what Christ has come to bear witness of. He is the kingdom, and he is the king, should I say, and thus all that are in Christ are in his kingdom. There are some who take off on this, some strange theology about um, uh, some idea about how kingdom of heaven and God is different. The, the reason that Matthew uses this phrase is simply because the kingdom, heaven is synonym, synonymous with God. And from a Jewish perspective, and that was his primary audience here in his gospel, uh, oftentimes they, wouldn't, they, they didn't like to say God. So they'd often use a euphemism like heaven. That's the way it is. You'll find kingdom of God actually in Matthew several times. He's the one who uses kingdom of heaven mostly. But you'll remember a verse that we might get to 633 of Matthew. Seek what? First, the kingdom of God kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. But this, what I emphasize, this is what Christ has come to proclaim. He is the king, he's coming, the kingdom now is at hand, and this is central to his teaching. Go ahead and turn to, if you, if you want to, we're not going to actually read these verses, but if you just, some of it's rooted, I'm going to mention several of his kingdom teaching that's found in parables in Matthew 13. I, I don't, sake of time, I won't be reading them, but just note that, and you might want to look at it later with that in mind. Commentary uh, put together this concept of kingdom and Christ's proclamation of it together with God and heaven and kingdom by itself without the descriptor. And he mentions that in kingdom of God by itself appears five times in Matthew, 14 in Mark, 32 in Luke, and two times in John. Kingdom by itself occurs 13 in Matthew, seven in Luke, three in John. In total, kingdom appears 50 times in Matthew, 14 in Mark, 39 in Luke, and 5 in John. What I'm suggesting is this is a key aspect of Christ's teaching that he would be speaking of his kingdom. In fact, 
some familiar parables, if you will. Oh, I did want you to see a verse, so if you're there, good. Turn to 13. But just let me overview these parables. Parables are teaching, they're analogies, if you will, they're illustration. In fact, the way it it speaks is the kingdom of heaven is like, right? So here in his teaching, this is not all of his teaching, obviously, but this is a sampling of it. And to get a sampling of it, they would include a lot of this concept about the kingdom. When Christ talks about my kingdom is not from, my kingdom not is of, his disciples would have known what he's talking about because he had been teaching on this for quite some time. You're familiar with the parable of the soils, if you will, different types of ground. He said, this is what my kingdom is like. There's different types of hearts, if you will, to where this good news that's proclaimed, this truth, falls on. And depending on the condition of the soil will be the response, depending on the ground. Jesus would say in our passage here in uh, John 18, that everyone of the truth hears my voice. That's the imagery in the Soils, right? Some falls on hard ground. Some falls on uh, a place where weeds grow up and choke it out, right? Some falls on good. And even on the good, as the word is proclaimed of his kingdom, that there are some degrees of fruitfulness in the good soil. Some 100, some 60, and some 30-fold. So it doesn't affect everyone equally. You don't demonstrate it. But the good soil does demonstrate fruit, and there's different degrees of fruitfulness of those that are in the kingdom. As another illustration he uses in the same passage. He talks about, we, we call it the weed and the tares or, or the weeds. You have a field, farmers out there, and his enemies sow bad seed in it on purpose to create a problem. And so what will we do between that which is true and that which is false? Well, in this kingdom, in this system in which the enemy, pointing out Satan, uh, uh, infects, if you will, the kingdom of God, we'll just wait to the end time and it will be clear. In the meantime, if they go out from us, we know they were never parked to begin with. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's a tiny seed, and before you know it, it goes forth. It goes forth and blossoms and becomes this great uh, uh, edifice, if you will, that all types of birds can come into and nest. All men, Jew, Gentile, every nation, every tongue comes into the kingdom. It is not a kingdom gospel for uh, any particular ethnicity, any particular religious thought or idea or political persuasion. It is a single gospel because there is a single king and has a single kingdom. He would teach them in that parable about leaven. Normally, leaven is used for, to describe that which is evil because leaven in... Um, Baking products, if you will, will permeate it. That's the idea. Here, it's used towards the kingdom to say, you know, when this gospel is going forward, it will permeate the whole society. That's why we call people to come to Christ. You want to change society? Preach the gospel. 
See the hearts of men and women changed. Raise up children to the glory of God. It will create a reformation that you couldn't imagine. That's what's needed, ultimately. Preaching the gospel. Preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Calling people to confess him as Lord. Guess what? It'll change their heart. The kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure, Jesus would say. If you recognize it, it you, will, you will give up all to have it. And quite similar to that, a particular object, another parable he uses called a pearl of great price, recognizing the great value there. You sell all that you have. You must have it. It is of infinite value. And finally, in this 13, the fishing net is used similar to the wheat in tear, just a different illustration in which a dragnet is brought through the sea. Obviously, there's going to be some fish that you keep and some that you discard. Just like the kingdom of heaven, we drag everyone in. We call you to come to Christ. But not everyone is true. And you will stand before the judge, the king, when he comes in the fullness of his kingdom, and he will separate. Great warning. By the way, since you turned there, I just thought I'd point out too, you have to be careful with analogies and illustrations. Interpretively. The person who gives it knows the meaning because that's why he used it. The illustration doesn't stand on its own because every aspect of that illustration doesn't apply, right? The only thing that applies is what is said to be applicable by that particular analogy, parable, or story. I was watching a debate, Vody Bauckham debating some news fellow I had a show I hadn't heard it before, but I saw the debate. It was pretty interesting. A little news clip, actually. But the guy that was interviewing Vody was trying to affirm why critical race was such important, and of course he goes to the Bible. <laughs> well, Vody knows the Bible. This guy doesn't. He knows about the Bible. He doesn't know the Bible because he doesn't know the king. He's not looking for the truth. He's not hearing the truth. He's wanting to import his ideas. And so he goes off on the parable of the lost sheep and says, well, see, Jesus went after this one that was oppressed and left all the 99 alone. And I don't know how you do it with a straight face, but, but Vody did and did a good job and tried to explain to him, look, that's in a series of, of lost things, a lost coin, um, and, and, and so forth. It, it's talking about the failure of the, of the Jews, the religious system, to have joy when someone comes into the kingdom of God. But that guy didn't get it, never heard it, didn't understand. And I'm reminded here, if you happen to be in 13 and verse 10, the disciples asked him, why are you talking in parables? I mean, he just gave all those that I gave you. Why, why didn't you just say straight up what you're doing? You, you're giving parables. He answers, verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
They don't know the meaning of it. They don't want to know the meaning of it. They want to import their own ideas and ideology. They don't want to submit to the king. Christ explains to them why he, meet, why he used that and demonstrates it. So therefore, they have it. It also becomes a judgment. It becomes a judgment that folks today can pick up the same thing that you and I have and read these very words that are in here, and it means nothing to them. It means nothing to them because they are not of the truth. They aren't hearing the truth. And, you know, I do think it's good, as Zodi did, to try to explain how you would interpret a passage, it's right there. But also know that if you don't know the king, you don't know his, you don't speak his language. Let me put it that way, right? He talks in a different language. He talks in truth. And you're not of the truth. You can be, confess him as Lord and hear him, obey him. Jesus teaches this teaching on the kingdom, this is contrasted to those that he is speaking to, as I already identified in Matthew 13, there were these same Jews. And when I say that, it's not just speaking ethically. I'm talking about the the religious leaders, this religious system, which is opposed to Christ, which although they had a lot of morality, they had a lot of good things about it. They had a lot of truth based on the Old Testament, but they had a lot of error mixed in, which demonstrates why they rejected Jesus Christ. At this time, they had created, first century, A pretty robust idea of the kingdom of God teaching. It's interesting then Jesus' language would be so full of this teaching about the kingdom of God. Because he is correcting their understanding of what this kingdom is about. If you go search the Old Testament, by the way, you will not find the phrase kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, not there. Now, I don't say that to say that the idea isn't there. I'm saying that phrase isn't there. The idea that God is a king and this world is his domain, you can find in a number of places. Psalm 33, for example, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth is all of their hosts. He gathers the water as the sea as a heap. He puts deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Because he is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. He is indeed king. But the phrase itself is not there. And so what happened in time is the, uh, the Jews by this point had created this kingdom theology that was not consistent with what the prophets prophesied about and what they pointed to. You see, their idea that of 
the kingdom of God was that, oh, well, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to judge the nations, right? The other kingdoms. And we're going to be ushered into the kingdom of God. Because we're of the kingdom of God, we have a covenant, think, contract with God. We are his people. So he's going to get them all and crush them, and we're going to survive. They concluded that from, and they were to some degree right. Isaiah, for example, Isaiah 11 talks about the king that's coming, and he says he's going to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Okay? So that is one aspect of the coming king. He is going to rescue, recover, save his people. This king, Isaiah would say in Isaiah 32, he is a king that will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. So here is a perfect king and a kingdom coming. He will reign in righteousness, that is in perfect truth. He'll bring about a restoration of his people. He will bring upon retribution to those that are against uh, Israel, his people. So they conclude that, hey, we're the people of God, and he's coming, and he will rescue and restore us because of our covenant. But Jesus helps them a little bit in their understanding because there is truth in what they're saying, but there's a lot of error, and therefore their understanding of the kingdom of God is wrong. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, I'll read a couple texts. You can go to John 3 in a minute. In Matthew 7, perhaps you remember this one well. When Jesus explains to these very people about his kingdom, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, think in the terms of sovereign king, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says that will enter into what? The kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's demonstrating a distinction between that which is a said faith and that which comes from the heart in actions. It isn't that the actions will bring you into the kingdom. It is that it will demonstrate that you are in the kingdom and of the truth. Because you have a regenerate heart. You confess truly from the heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, not just an external expression of that. Jesus would tell them in the next chapter, chapter 8, he says, I'll tell you, verse 11, that many, remember they have the idea that they're in the kingdom because they have this contract and the covenant. They're just waiting for the Messiah to roll up, destroy all the nations, rescue them, bring them in. But now Jesus is saying things, not everyone who thinks they're in are in. And he says in Matthew 8, verse 11, that many will come from the east and the west 
and they're going to recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That those were the patriarchs who are in the kingdom. But many that are outside are coming in to where? In the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into utter darkness. And in that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is, this kingdom's coming, and those that think they're in, they think they're sons of God because of the external commitments and relationships they have. They're going to be cast out. In utter darkness. And those that weren't even a part of it, he says, they're going to be brought in into the kingdom of heaven and they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Entrance then into the kingdom of heaven isn't because of your pedigree. It isn't because of external actions and behavior. It's because of the rescue of the king. It's demonstrated in a changed heart. Are you in John 3? Here Jesus specifically then talks to one of these rulers of the Jews one-on-one. He's taught this publicly, get it, all along in his ministry warned them that they have a misunderstanding about the kingdom. Yeah, there's some aspects that are true, but there's a fatal flaw in their theology. And he confronts one who, by the way, is named Nicodemus. We're familiar. Notice here verse 1 of chapter 3 in John. He's a ruler of the Jews. So he's part of this ruling class. (coughs) He comes to Jesus by night. And says to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Notice how it's set up beyond the secretive meeting because he wants to affirm and we already know what the rest of the court thought about Jesus. Here he seems to have an uh, introspective heart and, and he is saying, hey, um, you're... Apparently, you're one of us. You must be in the kingdom because you couldn't do these miracles. That's what he means by signs. They're absolute demonstrations of God's miraculous work. You couldn't do this unless you were in the kingdom. Can I pause here a minute? Nicodemus thinks he's in the kingdom, right? And so he's welcoming in Jesus. Come on in. Jesus will have none of that and explains to him, verse 3. And this is emphatic statement when he puts this truly, truly, verily, verily, or we would say amen, amen. This is to emphasize the truthfulness of what he's saying. He says, he points this guy out who, this guy was at the top of the heap, if you will. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He thinks he's in it. Jesus says, you're blind of it. You can't even see it. This is a guy who knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. This guy was a practicer of righteousness like you wouldn't believe. 
From all external things, he looks like he is on the right track. He thinks he's on the right track. And Jesus stops him cold and says, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Do you see how much weight that would have been on him? He thinks he's in the kingdom. He's waiting for the kingdom to come to find his refuge and rescue in the king and the kingdom. And Jesus says, you can't even see it unless you're born again. And then he gets into this question and not understanding born again. The word anathen in Greek is intentionally used by Jesus to both describe a second type of birth, but primarily one that is from above. That's what the word means. A supernatural, not from this world and not of this world. It is from one who is coming into this world bringing truth. You have to be born from above. He doesn't quite get it, and he talks only in the physical, external, in this world. It isn't a part of this world, is what Jesus is saying. So he clarifies it for him. (coughs) By the way, this is a guy who knew the Old Testament very well. We misunderstand often, many do, what Jesus is actually saying in verse 5. But I assure you, Nicodemus doesn't. He says, if you're blessed, you are born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Remember, he thought he's got the covenant ticket in it. And Jesus is saying, no, unless you have the water and the Spirit. It's referring to the concept from Ezekiel 36, for example. The imagery the Jews would have had. This this water actually doesn't do anything. The sprinkling of the water is a demonstration of cleansing. That's all. How will the cleansing come? It is a spiritual cleansing from God. Supernatural. Spirit with a capital S. Unless there is a supernatural work in your life, you can't get into the kingdom. In case we don't understand it, he makes that distinction again. In the next verse, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit, right? You're not going to get there by the will of man, by blood, by covenant, by being born in the right family, you might think, by having lucky experiences in life. This is a supernatural work of God's grace by his spirit. Don't even marvel that I said that. This should be understandable. And then he gives the illustration that I love, particularly this season of the year. And maybe it will ring in your mind when you go outside and see these beautiful leaves all over the place moving about. And here's the question. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from. And you don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's no manipulation in bringing to life those that are dead. It is a supernatural work of God's grace. Jesus is proclaiming that truth. 
That's the purpose for which he comes. Because his kingdom is not of this world. Well, I hadn't even finished my first point. But we'll see what we can do. Kind of get hung up sometimes thinking about Christ and his kingdom. And bothering to come into the world to bear such reproach against people that will not hear. I cannot imagine the patience and the graciousness of Christ our Lord. But he has a purpose in this kingdom. As we've already noted in John 18.36, he says it's not of this world. The kingdoms of this world are in rebellion against the true sovereign king. This is demonstrated in what they do where they crucify the Lord of guilty. Uh, the Lord of guilty. The Lord of glory. Sorry. After he's, our guilt laid on him. How about that? The Lord of glory crucifying him even though they declared he was not guilty. The Jews were correct in anticipating that the purposes for which the king will come is to establish his throne. He will rule and reign in righteousness. It will be a physical reign. It isn't just a spiritual reign. He will subdue the nations that are in rebellion against him and he will gather the citizens of his kingdom. The coming king will judge those that are in rebellion against him. The kingdoms of this world, all of them, will be judged by Christ. The Old Testament pointed to that. The New Testament confirms it. In fact, let's just go there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. You know it as a passage that deals with the resurrection of Christ. He is sovereign, risen king. There are no competing kingdoms in the sense that any system will have any effect or, or advantage on Christ. He is and always has been the God, creator, sustainer. He has always been king. And this will be played out in an eschatological sense. That is, this is where the world is going. You want to know what's going to happen in the future? The one who is true has told us. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, pointing to the fact of Christ's resurrection, emphasizes that the truth of it. He has risen from the grave. Verse 20. He has been raised. And he is then described as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism, fallen asleep, for those that are in Christ. And I think a beautiful one. You see someone laying there who is deceased, but they're in Christ. They're just waiting for a resurrection. 
As surely as Christ rose, so will all of those that are in Christ. And he explains why, verse 21. For as by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, that is, when Adam sinned, we were in Adam in that sense. <clears throat> so also in Christ all will be made alive. All of those that are in Christ will then surely be made alive. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. And then, notice this, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Here it is pointing in the coming of the king that there will be a order and a plan to how all this works out. And he jumps now to the very end of it, verse 24, then comes the end. All right, so what is the end game? What does it all point to and where does it go? Where is this kingdom going? When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's what's going to happen to them. No wonder we would call out and tell people even now, confess Jesus Christ is Lord. To Pilate, Jesus reminds him, you would have no authority over me unless I gave it to you because I am king and Lord. And to all those that might stand in self-assurance, in their own pride, recognize this, that all will be destroyed. Every rule, every authority, every power, because Christ is king. You know how it'll be demonstrated more than anything, and that's the context of this in the resurrection. You know what? There'll be no more death. Do you hate death? I do. I mean, I look forward to being with Christ, but it's sure painful when we lose one of you guys. It hurts. Even if you're just asleep. And it's the idea of dying as we get older, diseased, or things happening. You know what? All of that's going to be destroyed. Every bit of it. This is the plan of the king. This is the plan of his kingdom. There'll be no more death. All of the world's system, which is characterized by death, will be destroyed. And all that will remain is the kingdom of Christ, which is characterized by what? Life. Verse 27. For God has put all all things in subjection under his feet. Well, I waxed too eloquent on that, so I'm going to finish with one final verse. Turn to Psalm chapter 2, and I'll conclude with this, and we'll have a part three on the kingdom. Maybe, we'll see. But I do want to finish with this. Because it gives a good response then both for us and those that you may be also proclaiming the kingdom, following Christ who has called us to preach the gospel of the kingdom. In this gospel of the kingdom, 
yes, there will be great judgment that will come, so take that as a warning. But in that proclamation, there is a rescue, a redemption, and that is only found in the only person that could protect you, and that would be the king. If you're in him, you will be saved. Listen how the psalmist puts this. I, I, I think it's so wonderfully said. I'll just read it straight through. Well, my mind stop. But listen here. Why did the, verse 1 of chapter 2 in the book of Psalms, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Does that explain this drama going on before Jesus now in front of Pilate and the Jewish nation? The kings on earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed would be the Messiah. It's this very event that we're at. And guess what? This event is repeated day after day after day and even occurs right now. They take counsel against themselves, against this anointing. Let us, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. We, we don't want to be tied up with what Christ tells us to do. Let's put that away. Let's just redefine it in visions that we want. What does God think about any of this? He who is in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. This is said in a way that we could understand it anthropopathically, if you will, from our perspective. God is doing this in righteousness, but we would see it. You could imagine God's like, what are you guys doing? Type thing. He's going to hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his, notice this, wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, this is God, the Lord of hosts, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion would have been Jerusalem, right there. His holy, sanctified, set apart, that is his king. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of, your, of the earth your possession. Here's the judgment talk then. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. How hard is it to break a piece of pottery? Or in our case, a glass on our tile floor. Not much. Therefore, what's the warning? O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. The response should be, serve, verse 11, the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. It isn't that he's a wrathful God. It's that it is a righteous response against that which is evil. Light dispels darkness, so righteousness dispels unrighteousness. That's the imagery. It's just using language that we can understand. 
To, to kiss the Son would be to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, to gain an intimate relationship with him, be on his side, if you will, the friend of sinners, so that you will not, what, perish, if you will. But notice this, blessed are those who take refuge in him. The blessed ones are the ones who are in refuge in Christ. So that's the plan and the message of the kingdom. To call many to repent and return to Christ for refuge. Because in him you will have great blessing. Outside of Christ you will perish in the way. This is what Christ taught about his kingdom. And the question that we would ask ourselves is to, are we proclaiming this gospel that includes both wrath to come and the rescue now and find it only in the king? It's a call for salvation, repentance, and faith. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word, for your truth, for Christ who has come to bear witness of the truth. I pray we would do likewise. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, give, let's give a moment now for you to reflect and think on these things. I'll give you a moment privately where you're at. Father, we pray that your name would be hallowed in our hearts. We pray indeed that your kingdom will come. We pray that your will will be done. Not only in our hearts, but also in the earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 297 in our hymnals, 297. First Chronicles 29:11 says, Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty.
Father, you tell us in your scriptures that there was a king by the name of Darius who realized after throwing one of your servants, Daniel, in the lion's den that you truly were king of all kings and lord of all lords when he wrote into all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.